Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we will be discussing the seventh episode of The Patient on Hulu called Kaddish. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Sona? Gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's either that or Kaddish, I suppose. Kaddish. I'm not sure which it is. Maybe it's maybe it is Kaddish, like radish. Hmm. Neither of us have the right background to answer that question. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, before we get to that, I had... Uh, should have told, pulled the plug on this somewhere along the way, but I had mentioned that we might be covering that My Best Friend's Exorcism show from last week, mm-hmm. which I did watch, but don't really recommend. <laughs> so I did, actually told you to not watch it. Yes, thanks for that. <laughs> and uh, Save me some time. Yeah, save you a little bit of time. Hopefully, unfortunately, maybe the people out there might have watched it. Uh, and it was just totally fine, I thought. I mean, the most interesting thing I could possibly say about that is that at the beginning, it's really bad in that it is completely completely committing to the aesthetics of those 80s movies where, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, very much, you know, riffing on Nightmare on Elm Street, definitely, but even more low budget than that uh, style of those uh, and the acting style and the, and the visual style of some of those movies. It's That's kind of where the humor comes from. And what I would say is by the end of the movie, it just starts feeling bad. And I'm like, I don't know if they overcommitted to this or if this is just bad. Mm. <laughs> but either way, it's uh, mediocre at best, although maybe a little nostalgia trip for some folks. A bigger recommendation I'd make for you, Sona, I think you would like this. It's not as good as The Ring, but it's the number one movie in the land right now, at the box office anyway. And it is Smile, which on the negative side is, um, you know, I think these are the criticism you'll hear, is that it borrows a lot from The Ring, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, also from It Follows has some elements of that as well. You know, you basically have a mystery of a curse and how do you unravel it? And this woman is cursed with this smile that she's seen people see the smile and then four days later they commit suicide it sometimes it takes more than four days but they witness a suicide and then they commit suicide and then she's trying to basically beat the clock and see if she can uh, evade this terrible thing that's going to happen to her and uh, i thought this is really well done it's a, a first film by this director the scares are very good the practical effects when they are finally revealed are really impressive and creepy there are so many jump scares in this film legitimate ones like you know not just like a cat being thrown at the camera but like legitimate jump scares that mm-hmm. it almost starts being comedic it's just like wow how many like you have a jump scare within a jump scare like it starts getting a little bit too much uh, but it, it definitely delivers it definitely works really well as a horror movie and as a thriller maybe uh tone it down a little bit that's <laughs> my recommendation for this filmmaker but still i think very effective <laughs> as a thriller and also very interesting that the, in her background the protagonist here her background is that she had witnessed her mother's suicide years before and now mm-hmm. she is like now trying to evade her own suicide and the whole thing becomes like people don't believe that this is happening to her it becomes like kind of a metaphor for dealing with this trauma and being depressed so it has things on its mind it does a pretty good job of those things mm-hmm. and um, like i said the biggest criticism is even some of the really cool visuals they have here like the camera flipping over when you see a car driving down the street is lifted right from midsomar so many many times they're ripping off ideas from better films but they're ripping off very good ideas and they're executing them very well so i think it is a very entertaining horror film uh so if you're looking for a scare for the halloween season a good one to watch uh, and that's in theaters right now. So I'm, many people i'm sure if you're a horror fan you're probably going to go check it out anyway but i would give it a thumbs up and I'm very interested to see what they do next time. Maybe a little something, a little less derivative, but still, like I said, very effective at what it does. Mm-hmm. With all of that out of the way, let's get into this episode. Caddish, I think you were correct about that pronunciation. 
we see that Alan wakes up. Speaking of a, you know, a jump scare within a jump scare, Alan has like a dream within a dream within a fantasy in this opening of this uh, episode. He uh, is back in Auschwitz again in his this fantasy he's in or this nightmare, I guess, that he's in. He sees some Orthodox Jews reciting the Kaddish, I guess, preparing for their own death, unfortunately, in this uh, fantasy that he's in. That is interrupted by a fantasy he's having of a SWAT team busting in and rescuing him. All because they found the note. <laughs> right. I have many questions about that in just a minute. Uh, and that all is interrupted by the fact that he is basically telling this to this fantasy um, psychotherapist of his, Charlie. And I'll just come right out and say it, that I thought this was a really solid episode of TV, based, definitely based uh, compared to the previous uh, episodes. But I would say right here off the bat, I think one of the things that makes this thing stand out for me specifically is that even though there's a lot of grim introspection here, and I thought it very well done, there's also a lot of comedy in this episode. And I think it's something that's been very, very much lacking in the show up until this point. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the comedic point. So I'll be interested to hear what stood out to you in that way. But I do agree that this episode was a thousand times more cohesive than the last (laughs) episode and just felt much more premeditated (laughs) as far as what it was trying to tell us and show us. And those things were interesting to me. Yeah, I think even in this opening sequence where we have this very disorienting, like these different fantasy sequences all bumping up against each other, it's very disorienting, but we know exactly that we are inside of Alan's mind, but it's also putting us into his frame of mind that he is in a very disoriented state. So I thought that was really well done that they kind of put these things together and are creating a headspace, but it's very clear what we're seeing done. Speaking of that comedy, it comes off, you know, right here. I think, first of all, the repeated scenes of the SWAT team, SWAT, you know, rescuing him is uh for me was comedic just kind of using that that's over interesting over i didn't find that comedic no <laughs> no i didn't <laughs> well, one thing i did find but but here right off the top something i did find comedic was this conversations that he's having with charlie where he yes. says <laughs> no that is true that is true yeah he's saying well one scenario is that they're going to swoop in and find me because of the letter which once again i guess we can circle back to it right now what is the plan that this letter is somehow going to rescue him? Like, so what was- I think the plan is he had instructed Sam, uh, it was going to be important to the family to have the body back, Elias, found. Mm-hmm. Elias, 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 mm-hmm. to have the body found and return the body to the family. So he instructed him to leave it someplace that it would be found with the idea that then obviously there would be an autopsy to find out exactly what happened. And in the process of the autopsy, they would find the note, which had, you know, food inspector or something, something on it. Oh, and, and Sam's full name on there, of course. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then they would be able to find him. Good point. Good point. Oh, See, I actually am paying attention, even <laughs> though I am bored at times. <laughs> I couldn't remember what was happening on what he had written on the note. that was. I had out. to rewind it last week. Oh, thank you for doing that, by the way. Yeah. I... Well, I still was only just able to tell you food <laughs> inspector something, something. <laughs> well, that's enough. Even that gives us a clue as to what, you know. At I the mean, time I rewound it, I knew what it said. I just can't recall it a week later. Another comedic element here, I think, is like, you know, where he's seeing this one scenario, you know, the SWAT team comes in, he's telling Charlie, and then he will, of course, the fantasy he's had many, many times, he's going to smash the uh, pot and then stab him with it because he's been you know wanting to do that so many times but that's not enough then the SWAT team also shoots him in the head repeatedly (laughs) 
I guess you didn't find that as funny as I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it was a point. I didn't find it funny, but it was like, yes, like they were shooting him from the back, right? Like none of it made any sense. Right. I it mean, was it, just it, the anger he has in this whole situation. That's why I found it was funny. He's like, exactly yeah. like you said, like he has, um, Sam has the same like kind of dumbfounded look, like as his head is literally being shot off. Like, so, it, yes. <laughs> which was part of the, the humor to me. Charlie goes, oh, and then he goes, what's the other scenario? And then of course we have this very, you know, caricature version of him, you know, stabbing him through the face because he mm -hmm. found the note, but he comes inside, he shows the note, shows the knife, you know, it's like something out of a cartoon almost. If he drives a knife down my throat, I don't know, die as quickly as possible. Well, I mean, your hands aren't tied, are they? I just shoved a note down a poor dead kid's throat. That was pretty good. I'm sorry I didn't use my skills as a mediocre high school wrestler to beat a crazed killer to death. Fuck you, Charlie. I got old. You've mentioned your old age and your weakness several times already. It's pretty relevant. I agree. We should talk about it. If nothing else, it's probably the most interesting case you've ever had. Oh. I'll write a book. Sam's treatment. There. I have the title. <laughs> Uh, I did also like later on when uh, he's talking to Charlie and goes, uh, Charlie, this fictional version of Charlie, obviously this is all happening in his mind, but this fictional version of Charlie says, uh, it's a good day to be alive, <laughs> to which he replies, jealous. <laughs> of course, Charlie's, <laughs> Charlie, the real Charlie is, uh, is, right. is dead and gone. So yeah, so just, I, like I said, this isn't like laugh out loud comedy. It's just the, um, I just thought the fact that they were allowing humor, the you know very yes. ga gallows humor to exist in this world, which has been so grim up until this point. Yeah. beyond that you know these like kind of little touches of comedy i think really what else really worked for me here is all of that deep introspection we see here which i think is really interesting and you see things actually starting to tie together uh he talks to charlie about sam's fandom and how he uses this you know kenny chesney fandom to create some kind of community when he doesn't actually have that ability of communing with people so I think that's interesting. Just kind of some of the themes we talked about this also with the Dahmer conversation we had last week. And then uh, another thing that I think is interesting here is when Charlie says, even now, you know, if you really do believe you're about to die, isn't it time that you should take off this, take the veil off, which implies to me that there is yet something more to this story. Alan's relationship with his son and what happened with within the family that we haven't fully revealed yet. And I think that is yet to be fully exposed maybe part of the alienation that ezra's had with the family but then i did also just think that this flashback to ezra and how he kind of confronts his mom and the family thinks that they don't have enough of a relationship with god that all this backgrounding of that relationship i find really interesting he and at that point alan actually tries to uh recite the kaddish and that's when sam shows up and a couple of interesting things happen here. First of all, he can't remember the words to the Kaddish and mm -hmm. Sam wants to have like basically a session on demand when he re returns to which Alan is kind of just at this point, I think he's just given up on everything. And he just says, you know, I've been very tired today. <laughs> basically he, he's mm -hmm. exhausted from just all this introspection to which Sam just leaves him alone. Like Sam actually gives him his space, which maybe is a sign of empathy and another reason I think that Sam might be wrestling with empathy is that, you know, he seems suicidal at one point here in this episode. He is definitely depressed. And uh, we touched on it last week as well, when he has killed Elias and he runs to that stack of wallets and he's frantic at that moment. 
And we had speculated that maybe he isn't feeling the same thing he normally would feel mm-hmm. in this circumstance. And I think that's what's happening to him now, right? He feels like he, he has done this thing like he normally would, and he's not getting the same mm-hmm. rush or whatever happens to be uh, at this point. Sorry, I was going to back up to Ezra. Okay, um, go ahead. Yeah. There was so much development of that. Yes. I almost wondered, and it seems like almost a little bit to Hallmark movie or something like that, but I wonder if in the end it's going to be Ezra that somebody somehow saves Steve Carell, whose name is completely Alan. <laughs> the character Alan. named Alan, because there just seems to be so much established about how distant they had become, how really like this issue had drawn such a wedge between them. And his family had become completely estranged from their son. I just wonder if somehow in the end, Ezra will have some role in how this all resolves. That would be interesting to to see play out. The one thing I saw here very powerfully, especially towards the end of the episode, where where there's a really great scene, maybe the first great scene the show's had, (laughs) when he is once again with Charlie, which I think all those sequences have been so good in this show in general, since this fictional Charlie character showed up. But the whole sequence where he lays it all out. That day, the last day, she's lying there. He gives his holier-than-thou speech, and he walks out of the house, and I go after him, mostly just to talk to him, try to get him to come back inside. Don't, don't do anything that you are going to regret doing for the rest of your life. And I get back this torrent. I never understood him. I was never there for him. I mistreated him ever since he became orthodox. I, I said the wrong thing to the rabbi at his son's bris. I, I, I didn't give a big enough donation to his fucking yeshiva in Israel. I once said that his wife made the best kosher steak that I had ever had. How about that? I complimented his wife. I get that he was hurting. His whole life was a rebellion against his mother. I support rebellions, obviously. I get it. And his mother, there was a lot to rebel against, a lot of individuating to do. But at a certain point, you have to come back around. You have to grow up. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where like someone is just unloading every single thing and not really talking about the thing that's the problem. Exactly. But, you know, all of those um, imagined or real slights throughout your life. It would be surprising if to find out that maybe Ezra has doggedly been looking for him this whole entire time. And then somehow. I agree. It would be surprising. But then I just (laughs) wonder where all this is going otherwise. Right. Well, the one thing I did was going to circle back to that. I think that Ezra kind of ties in here. Uh, We're talking about some of the family dynamics that played out in an abusive way in some of the earlier, better episodes of this show. And I think interestingly, we see him, this frustration he sees with Ezra being so pigheaded about this single-minded idea of, you know, this orthodox life. And I see some of that frustration potentially, uh, he could be directing some of that at Sam as well for being, you know, so pigheaded in his own beliefs about how he's being wronged by everybody he encounters instead of like giving them their own empathy. And I thought that was interesting to kind of parallel that trajectory of these two young men in his life. Uh, although I, it seems like he is not making this connection. <laughs> you know, us as the viewers maybe are making that connection, but he's I'm not. I'm not sure I'm making that connection either, but maybe <laughs> I'm supposed to though. <laughs> uh, you know, obviously his son is not a serial killer <laughs> or a sociopath. I mean, I don't believe he is, but uh, just to see some of that 
same contentiousness there. Then we see uh, Sam, speaking of Sam's own internal struggles going on, he is very much down and, and you know, the Kenny Chesney's not doing enough to lift his spirits now. <laughs> he uh, goes to reconnect with his, uh, I guess, high school counselor, right? Yes. And he remembers a time where this counselor had actually interceded where there was a, an abusive teacher and that not only had gotten this guy to calm down, he had also gotten him fired eventually. But Sam actually says, hey, do you ever do any counseling on the side? Which is problematic because you think about, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that he's going to try to abduct this guy too? <laughs> and also if mm-hmm, he's planning to re- mm-hmm. replace Alan, then uh, what happens to Alan in that circumstance? Right. And even though there's like literally in this sequence, it seems like there might be a, a threat to Alan. I do, I do also think that it shows some empathy being expressed here by Sam as well. A little comedy, maybe I'm reading comedy here where there isn't any, but another little moment of comedy that I thought was pretty funny was when Sam says, as the counselor is leaving, he says, yes. what would you think about living with your therapist? And just yes. just this actor's re- you know line reading, maybe it wasn't intentionally comedic, but him going like, I think that would be a terrible idea. No, I agree. I think it was supposed to be comedic too. I enjoyed it as well. Just the way he said that made me laugh. I agree. Okay, so I have a question for you. I was a little confused by this sequence because I couldn't tell who was riding these bikes, and maybe you can tell me what happens. We see another flashback, speaking of Ezra, and I believe this is Ezra, but correct me if I'm wrong, because we see a man with two children riding their bikes to their house. We hear Beth, the, the mom, with gray hair, so we know it's later in her life, and she says, how are you? And she goes, oh, I'm much better now. And she, you know, these, these two boys, one of them has is wearing a, uh, what is it, a yarmulke? Mm-hmm. She ushers them in, but the, I guess, Ezra, right, rides off on his bicycle and we see that Alan runs out to try to say goodbye to him or whatever, but he's already down the street by the time he leaves. Did I read that correctly? Because, I mean, I couldn't even tell who these people were. And also, I don't even know where we are in time because we keep jumping in time when we do flashbacks. You know, at one point we see Ezra when he's very young, when he's a child. And then I was thinking maybe this is Ezra, but I'm like, no, wait, he's too old. So mm-hmm. I was a little confused by what I was seeing there. But um, I'm going to be honest with you. I missed that scene altogether. But if I am reading it correctly, then I guess that it does at least speak to the fact that he is letting his grandkids have a relationship with mm-hmm. the grandparents, right? So that's still something, I guess. I guess. Meanwhile, Sam is, continues to have this like day of reflection. He calls mm-hmm. Mary. I like this a lot. Yeah. And he says to her, you know, some of the questions we had, right? Like, was I weird? Like, you know, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> Did you ever think that there was something wrong with me? What do you mean? I don't know, just something... Something that seemed wrong or different. You were my husband, Sam, and then we broke up. I I think there were all kinds of things wrong with you. Your whole life revolves around food. I was never positive you loved me. I know you loved me, but I mean... Loved, loved. But overall, I know you're a good guy. Okay, bye. I guess once again, we had a question as to who broke up the marriage. It looks like he was the one who alienated her and uh, called it off. So she never really understood what was happening. But then she does kind of try to smooth the waters there at the end by saying, but 
I know you're a good guy deep down inside, like just kind of this platitude, which of course he hangs up the phone at that point. He's really not convinced <laughs> of that mm-hmm. at all. I mean, I think there's a scene where we see him at the uh, water's edge and we do assume he's probably thinking about maybe jumping in the river, right? I thought so. But then because of what happens later, I wondered if Elias's body is in the water. I thought the same thing. I thought, you know what? It's funny. My initial reaction was, yes, this was just a suicide. And then I did think, well, is this where he disposes of the bodies possibly? Yes. And then maybe that's his, you know, he's at a point where he goes there to remember that because it gives him more control potentially over his emotions. Sam does eventually return. He's brought a printer back to the house for some reason. Alan cares about what kind of printer it is. I guess he's just trying to make small talk at that point. Yeah, that was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Sam says, first of all, I don't feel good. And he doesn't say it like as a threat. He says it in like, he's just depressed. Like he's yeah. potentially coming to grips with the things he's done. So maybe the first shreds of empathy here. And then like you mentioned already, uh, I hadn't thought about it at the time, but we also find out he admits to him that he disposed of the body. He didn't leave it out in the open and he disposed of it in a place where in a way that it would never be found. Uh, right. And of course, this makes Alan even more angry. You could tell Carell does a very good job, by the way, yes. in general, in this whole entire episode, I think in, in all the different timelines he's in, specifically in this episode, I think he gives a very, very strong performance. And the way he just has his bottled up rage when he gives him the Kaddish to read and he says it's private, which is true, you know, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you could just tell the frustration in him at that moment. Yeah, because, this is what was supposed to save him. That's so, right. This fantasy. That was his been, shot. Exactly. Yeah. Which, by the way, Charlie keeps calling him out. Of course, Charlie being just a manifestation of himself, calling him out many, many times being like, so when are you going to actually do something? And he's like, oh, you know, I put the note. I did the note. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. he's like, yes, but when are you going to do something more than that physically? Which, of course, we were asking the same question last week. As was Elias. As was Elias. That's right. That's true. (laughs) That's right. Then we have this kind of, once again, strangely touching scene. I'm not sure why I have any empathy for Sam at this point, but I did slightly have some empathy for Sam sitting at the door, listening through the door. Alan reading the Kaddish uh, while he listens in. And that's the end of the episode. And uh, I thought it was a very good episode, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, I was actually, <laughs> well, I said it held my interest, yet I managed to forget that that scene that you referenced. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's a very brief scene and I literally rewound it. That's the only reason that it sticks out to me. The whole episode is kind of disorienting and it's flash forwards and flashbacks. And they just kind of threw that in when he's talking to Charlie about, you know, Ezra and how obstinate he had become. And, uh, and they just threw the scene in there and I'm like, who is that? <laughs> what, what was that? Mm-hmm. It's a very brief scene. And I don't understand anything just happened in this scene. So I need to watch it. <laughs> and I still didn't really understand what happened. In this scene. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, uh, more interested in the direction the show might be going in at this point. I mean, yes, we said that two weeks ago and then we took a step back. So let's see. Yes, I know. I do worry, right? We had two weeks ago. We're like, oh, I feel good about this. Last week, not so good. Okay, a few questions for you here at the end before we wrap up. One is, we still don't know why he needed to have a Jewish therapist. I agree. I was wondering about that this episode as well, especially because he doesn't seem to have some connection to Jewish culture, right? He doesn't seem to like, be getting these references so what's the deal is it maybe maybe his father was jewish and this is some kind of revenge i don't know like I, I, and interestingly directly to this um episode reading of him reciting the kaddish he once again had had wanted to do it himself right he had actually asked you know if he could re- recite the kaddish 
uh, and he, you know, which is something that Alan even calls out to Charlie, like how if it infuriated him when he would wanted to recite the Kaddish yes. to calm himself down. Once again, the idea that this person has no connection to Jewish culture. So why is he fixated on this thing? It's a mystery. All right. One more thing, a negative take that I might give you here, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I found very troubling, which is last week I was like the mom just miraculously appearing in that opening sequence. The only time we see her in the entire episode. She just miraculously appears. Yeah. He rolls up in the car. The camera literally pans down. There's nobody there. Camera pans down. There she is, boom, behind the truck. And she's like, that noise last night, I almost called 911. Yes. This, this has to end, blah, blah, blah. And I even went back and rewatched that scene to see if there was additional dialogue there. But that's pretty much the entirety of that scene. And the reason I call it out is because there she was almost completely sidelined in last week's episode and utterly sidelined in this week's episode. How did there was not a single time that she would have walked down the stairs and checked in on her. Right. You know? I know. I mean, I just keep thinking to myself, like if I'm Alan, when I'm alone in the house with her all day long, I am going to work her the whole entire day. Going like, look, you have to do something about this. You're mm-hmm, putting yourself mm-hmm. in danger. Your son's going to end up getting arrested sooner or later. Someone's going to mm-hmm. catch him. It's only going to be worse for him later down the line. If I end up dead, if any of these other people end up dead, that blood is on your hands. Like I would be working her so hard. And like, mm-hmm. it's just so weird that he like doesn't have a single interaction with her this whole entire week, which a uh, little strange, a little strange. Mm-hmm. So. Maybe she just went uh, to a spa or something for the weekend. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> she needs to get away from that. She needs to get away from all this. I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Totally understandable. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so everybody out there, hang around. And Sony, you can listen to this too when we publish the episode. I had a conversation with Sarah. She talked about kind of a psychological case study of this whole circumstance in the patient. And talking about serial killers, we inevitably started talking about Dahmer again. <laughs> So a little bit of uh, psychoanalyzing <laughs> Dahmer as well. And just, uh, I guess the whole serial killer phenomena in general in popular culture. So hang around. That conversation will follow immediately after this one. Cool. All right. Talk to you soon. Have a, get, get, some, you later. get some rest. <laughs> you too. All right. Bye. With all the emotion and pain swirling around Beth's death, Ezra hit a bad spot. You did too. But we know these things pass. It didn't pass. That day, Beth wanted to die with her family around her, and he had to throw this tantrum. He was struggling to process the pain of his mother's death. Okay, but he's always been like that. He digs in, and he can't see any other way but the way he sees things. No wonder he became orthodox. All right. So we finally have Sarah back on the show. I've been teasing that I'm going to have this conversation with you for like weeks now. Finally, mm-hmm. we got we got together. I also wanted to mention to you that the episode, and if people haven't listened to it, you should track it down. The episode I did with Sarah, where she did a psychological case study of the family in succession, is our most popular succession recap episode. And to this day, it continues to get more listeners. So people are wow. like that episode. And anybody out there who hasn't listened to that, definitely track that down. But I want to get your feedback, Sarah, because Sona and I are really struggling to get through the patient. You obviously are a clinician, so you have some experience in, uh, and I might be using that terminology wrong, so correct me, please. (laughs) But um, you've had some experience with people who have 
obviously not potentially serial killers. I assume you have it, but maybe, maybe, maybe you have a more juicy story there than I know. What's your read on the show? Because we have been frustrated with not necessarily the psychology of the characters, just the unfolding of the plotting of the show. But I want to get your takeaway because I think you have a more positive read on the show. So I think it really captured me because as a therapist, it's really kind of your worst nightmare mm-hmm. as, as you know, as a therapist. I have not worked with any serial killers, to my, <laughs> my knowledge. Obviously, protecting confidentiality, not going into any detail or anything. I have worked with some folks who I would characterize as antisocial mm-hmm. and severely narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and those often go hand in hand with sociopathy or psychopathy. Mm-hmm. I think from those experiences, just, you know, had some memories of times that I've been, for instance, afraid to walk to my car mm. after work from my office, after meeting with, with certain folks and um, in the past, and just sort of dealing with those kinds of feelings and, and that kind of counter-transference when you kind of have a sense that someone might be, you know, a danger to someone else. Mm-hmm. That's sort of, I think, part of why I've been so, like, captivated by this show. Mm-hmm. In terms of the like the slow unfolding, I do kind of agree with you and Sona, especially the first few episodes. It was mm-hmm. just like, where kind of where is this going? Right. Um, I think you guys commented on the most recent episode about how it's kind of like disjointed to yeah. kind of yeah. skips around a lot. I think that because the psychological part of it is so interesting to me, I mm-hmm. kind of forgive some of that because yeah. I'm so interested in that content. And I, I've just been thinking more about some of the themes around trauma and yeah. control, because I yeah. think that's a huge theme too. And the way that Sam has this sort of fantasy that somehow he can make this person cure him. Mm-hmm. When someone comes to you and asks to be fixed mm-hmm. or to be cured, it really is a fantasy that it's not their responsibility to heal. Mm-hmm. It's the the idea that someone else could do it for them, mm-hmm. which suggests like extreme, you know, either developmental arrest or extreme need or this sort of fantasy of being rescued, perhaps. And considering Sam's trauma history with his abuse by his father, I think that kind of we could understand it in that context in a way, this fantasy of being saved by somebody else. I, so a, a few specific questions I have uh, based on all the things you just said. One is, and I agree with this, I think it bothers Sona even more so, is how little we get from Sam. And I honestly, even as I watch the show and I have my criticism of it, that probably is a pretty realistic read on like a sociopath, right? They probably are not the most charismatic people, despite what serial killer shows will try to convince us of. That's probably, you know, they're not Hannibal Lecter's. <laughs> they're probably more like these very antisocial people, right? So that's probably what Sam is legitimately like. And before I get into this, I have a bunch of other questions about his mom and about the dynamics between them, for example. And and something you brought up to me, by the way, in uh, I think episode three, and now it's explicit by now, where I think we're in episode six now that we're discussing, when I was like, what is going on? Where we're having these flashbacks to his family, et cetera. And you said he's disassociating. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a more, a pre, like a more of an appreciation of what I was seeing. And of course, we saw it explicitly in this episode where he actually says to his phantom uh, therapist, uh, right. David Allen Greer, that he's disassociating and imagining 
his dead uh, therapist. You know, so I, I think you were ahead of it on that. First of all, what is what's your read on Sam as a more realistic portrayal of that type of persona? And also, what do you see in the dynamic with his mom? That's another thing that's kind of a sticking point for us. Could someone be this passive in this situation, like the mom herself? To your first question, I, I think it was striking to me when Sam first enters therapy, when they're still me- actually meeting in Alan's office, and he's wearing sunglasses. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, Alan asks him to take his sunglasses off. I've experienced it more with patients who might be more paranoid or mm-hmm. sort of experiencing psychotic symptoms where it's sort of a way to protect themselves doing mm-hmm. something like wearing sunglasses in the office. But I think in this case, there's probably some of that that sort of self-protection too, because on the one hand, he's saying that he's coming to therapy to seek help. Mm-hmm. But you can see the sort of from the beginning, this again, this like idea that I'm here so that you can fix me. I was sort of feeling like you can kind of feel the rage kind of bubbling underneath, mm-hmm. even in those early moments. There's a part of him that's trying to change, right. apparently. I think he's so defended and so angry that it's difficult for him to actually be able to change, right. And which is, of course, why he then, of course, kidnaps Alan in this sort of fantasy that, okay, well, if I can just control the situation then somehow it's on this other person. And if I fail, it's their fault, which he also kind of starts referencing more. Like I think in the most recent episode, he says something to Alan, like, thanks a lot or after Elias died. To your point there, I think multiple times when his mom calls him out, when um, Alan calls him out, basically saying that he needs to take some action, he gets extremely defensive, right? As if he's like the victim here always, right? And I guess that's another question I have for you. Like, do you see that for someone who has a sociopathic personality or narcissistic personality, I guess definitely for narcissistic personality, where it is always deflecting, right? It's always saying, it isn't someone else's fault. Like, let me tell you what they did to me. And they're never really taking responsibility for their own action. That's a pretty common presentation. There's not really an ability to take responsibility for one's own role and to break out of this idea that they are the victim and that other people have wronged them. With Sam, we see that as like he he believes he has this kind of moral code almost. Mm-hmm. The people that have quote unquote wronged him, they're they're the sort of the monster. And he's doing something, he's teaching them a lesson. Right. I think part of that can often be around the idea that if you were to give up the idea that you might play a role in something, right, that you might have accountability and responsibility, it would completely shake your homeostasis. Mm. It would mean that you would have to face things that are incredibly difficult to face, which means like, oh, right, I actually do play a role in my own life. I'm an adult with agency. For someone who has these kind of personality disorder traits, their core sense of self is actually incredibly fragile. Mm -hmm. So for them to give up the idea that it's everyone else's fault and that they're the ones that are the victim it's so destabilizing to them that it's very, very difficult to help someone. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult and it's a long process to help them to understand the role that they're playing in their own life, in their own difficulties. 
I don't think this show, and maybe I'm wrong about it, maybe this will develop over time. I don't think the show is supposed to be a political metaphor, but possibly it is. Now we're starting to see these kind of signs of Nazism and you know, in this most recent episode, which for me was kind of confounding. And there's actually, I think I looked ahead on the titles of the upcoming episodes just when I prepare for the episodes. And I think in two weeks, there's an episode called Auschwitz. So they're going to go even deeper into this paralleling of Nazism with whatever's happening in the house. And maybe the show can land this. You know, I'm a little confused. But what I was going to mention is I personally feel in the current political climate, this is like a new thing where we have the bullies, the actual bullies, whether it's on the internet, whether it's politically, the people who have like all the power and are wielding all that power, like, you know, whether it's Putin uh, right now in Russia, or whether it's these people who attack the Sandy Hook families, basically saying that like, I'm the victim because you're like blocking my Twitter account. And then therefore my disproportionate response is to basically threaten the lives of your family and make you move out of town. And they are the victims. It's like, you don't understand. They blocked my tweet because this is in their minds somehow proportionate. And I think it's like, it's sociopathic, that response. And I think that unfortunately, the internet allows us to be so distant from each other that we can have that overreaction. I, you would never do that if the person was sitting in front of you, but you know, it's kind of giving you this. So maybe I am laying a bigger metaphor on top of the show than that is there. But I do find that interesting because that's just something that's in my mind recently. But something mm -hmm. that I think is definitely in the show that I want to get your read on, as disappointed as I was with the current episode, I thought the last episode, the one before this episode five was really, really fascinating. I liked seeing him go visit with his wife, which seems to be somewhat healthy. Like he does not seem to be terrorizing her or she doesn't seem to be afraid of him. His dynamic seems to be different in her company, but more interesting, he comes home with that chair. This is very theatrical, but I found it very interesting. And now he's sitting in the chair, kind of reclining, looking down his nose. And then he does this terrible thing and his mom is terrified. Alan is cowering while he's killing this guy. And it feels like this is him playing the dynamic of his childhood where he is now in the father role. I think there's definitely, and, and I have some thoughts too about the Holocaust imagery that's yes, coming up. Too. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. I too sort of interpreted that as almost like an enactment of these sort of like abusive power dynamics mm -hmm. that he's sort of on the one hand, claiming that he's not like his father, right? Right, right. That he's protecting his mother, that he is only doing these horrible things to people who, quote, deserve it. Right. Which is true. He was an innocent child mm -hmm. who was completely terrorized and abused by his father, which is one of the most damaging things that can happen to anyone. Mm -hmm. It almost seemed to me like a just a sort of a sort of recapitulation of the dynamic between him and his father. He's sort of taking on his father's role. I think again, largely unconsciously because he doesn't, he believes that he's very different from his father. He's splitting that off, denying that he's actually also abusing and killing people. You know, in fact, he's doing, we could argue he's gone beyond what his father did, obviously, because he's murdering people. I think it felt like sort of a power and control sort of stance as we see Alan having to witness the murder. Mm -hmm. Alan is now in Sam's position because exactly. he's completely helpless mm -hmm. and completely traumatized mm -hmm. and frozen. Right. And, you know, we see that like the way that trauma response happens too. the sort of fight, flight, freeze, fawn right. modes like people respond differently to trauma. 
he's on the one hand, hand having fantasies of figuring out how to smash. Yeah. (laughs) Multiple times, right? Yeah. He's having those kind of fantasies. And on the other hand, he's dissociating or he's freezing because he's terrified. Right. I agree with you that that seemed to be some kind of enactment. I had skipped past the, uh, you know, the political read because I didn't, I I thought that would be a little like of a dense read that I was kind of imposing on the show, but you did have something to add to that. I think it makes sense because we're talking about Trumpism, right? Right. In, In the sort of MAGA world. And Trump is a very apparently a malignant narcissist, even though we're not supposed to diagnose people that we don't actually treat. But I think the way it's played out on the world stage, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. That kind of narcissism, people are now emboldened because like you were describing, it's like this really sort of completely sort of detached from reality logic. They're somehow being victimized. Again, this whole thing of it's their fault. It's not my fault. It's all on them. I mean, of course, there's been many political figures, but currently like that whole sort of political dynamic, I think has really like given people just like Tucker Carlson too, you know, it's like given people this kind of permission. What I think is interesting not to go too far down the the Trump rabbit hole, because that can become a huge digression. One of the most interesting things I find about the phenomena, you know, we see in Europe with uh, you know these, some of these elections recently where the far right is winning elections. And uh, you know you see, think about Bolsonaro in Brazil, which was pre- before Trump's election or the you know fear of immigration that kind of led to the Brexit vote once again, like a whole year before mm-hmm. the election of Trump. Uh, the phenomena is more of a indication of a direction that the culture in general is going in. Mm-hmm. Right. And but also and, and to that point, it's very easy for some people. I feel like still to this day, people are like saying like, I can't believe Trump did this. Like once he got elected, like as if he was like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I'm like, Trump and they made no bones about who he was. He uh-huh. openly said he was a narcissist, right? Like he was on stage saying, I don't pay my taxes because I'm smart. Like he's not saying like, oh, you caught me not paying taxes. You know, like everyone should pay their taxes. And, you know, I'm rich and successful, so I should pay my taxes, too. He's like, I don't pay taxes because I'm smart. Mm-hmm. And everybody, his fans didn't think like, oh, my God, well, you know, this guy's ripping us off by not paying his taxes. I got to pay my taxes. They're like, I'm going to vote for that guy. <laughs> I like yeah. him. Right. So he's just being exactly who he is. It just happens to be that culturally that is, you know, that'll win you an election nowadays. And and I think it speaks more to like speaking of bubbling up. I think that there is this frustration among uh, people who, you know, used to have the, the keys to the, to the castle, uh, you know, having to share some of that and they're not happy with it. right? Yeah. And, uh, and I think it's kind of boiling over into politics now and into other things, to social media, et cetera. And like I said, maybe this show is not dealing with that, but uh, I can't help but see some of that in this character as kind of a metaphor for these people as well. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you want to go down that rabbit hole, you have this guy who has intentionally picked a victim of his therapist who's Jewish. He's made a point of it in episode one that he actually went to multiple Jewish, had to be Jewish therapists. Don't know why they've made that point Mm -hmm. yet. And also the fact that this um, uh, restaurateur that he killed, uh, Elias, was an immigrant or his family was immigrants, right? So it's a family of immigrants. So there, I was kind of discounting that as a metaphor here in the show. Maybe it is. Maybe that's part of what they're exploring here. Well, particularly because there's these allusions to fascism too. Yes, exactly. Oh. Which has become more pronounced. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. So maybe this whole thing is like a bait and switch where it's going to be a big political metaphor. And, uh, you know, I've kind of caught in the weeds of the personal dynamics. You make a really good point, by the way, because that's a frustration for me. I just feel like, isn't there anything he can do? You know, Sona and I were going on about how, like when he's holding the shovel, you literally can just sh- swing that shovel. By the way, Sam is smart enough to, even then, assuming that this, the shovel might be coming his way, he makes sure to stay shovel length away from uh, Carell. But once Carell has that shovel in his hands, he can basically just swing it at Sam and be like, you are not getting anywhere near me. I'm going to start smashing this uh, shovel against the the pipes. I'm going to break the pipes. I'm going to smash out the windows in this room. I'm going to make as much noise as I can until someone shows up or your mom calls somebody or something happens. And uh, and that's how I would. But you, to your point, would I actually react that way? Or is that how I imagine that I would react? And uh, And even if I would react that way, some people freeze up in, in moments of trauma. So mm-hmm. it may right. be that that is his response there. This goes to the um, the sort of intergenerational trauma aspect of this too. My first association to Alan sort of calling up this image of a concentration camp, yeah, which was at the moment in the episode when Sam is starting to dig a grave. Right. My first association was to the Holocaust and the Jewish people who were forced to participate right. in the like the crematoriums and right. the gas chambers in the killing of other Jews. Right. It was actually really, it's just an incredibly painful, horrifying association for him to have, to be back in that place where, in my mind, assuming he, there's Holocaust history in his family, Mm-hmm. Alan's family, he's now participating in having to bury Elias's body. Right. The way that that then connects to the potential trauma-related reactions that he's having. Even when he was talking to his therapist, he was looking over at the picture and was like imagining grabbing it and smashing Sam. Mm-hmm. Under that level of terror, in addition to having this sort of potentially intergenerational trauma response happening at the same time. I think that it helps us understand potentially why he is either frozen or I think the wheels are still turning. We see that when he then part of him is continuing to try to figure out, I don't know if it's, if it's necessarily to help Sam, but he's trying to figure out how to survive, which is then what we see when he puts the note in Elias's mouth. Right. I think it's just important to like consider just the range of different folks' reactions to something as horrifying and and, and terrorizing as that, because it's sort of like the, the same thing where we say to people who are in interpersonal violence situations or domestic right. violence situations, like, why doesn't she just leave? Right. Why right. doesn't she just leave the guy? Right. Because of course, it's not as easy as that. It's right. There's often other things at stake. There's often, in fact, as we know, the threat of violence escalates exponentially when someone tries to leave. Right. So I think I think that that's that's my interpretation of part of what's what's going on here. Although, of course, we're all wishing that Alan would just, you know, do something because it's horrible to see him as it is to for all of us. And, you know, anyone who's experienced somebody who's in an abusive relationship or you know, patients of mine that I've seen that have been sort of trapped in these ways, there's the real feeling of helplessness. Yeah. And I think that's another piece of it with Alan too. He's, again, he's helpless to actually 
help Sam. It's not therapy that they're doing. When there is no sense of safety, when there is no sort of agreed upon contract of safety, therapy cannot occur. So it's, it's a crisis situation and crisis requires crisis intervention and therapy is secondary, especially when it involves someone threatening themselves or someone else. You're not going to do deep psychotherapy work. You need to deal with the crisis. And so he's forced into this impossible situation where he's being asked to provide (laughs) psychotherapy. Right. And it's impossible. So I think the psychology of the characters actually do make sense to me. I think my frustration is more in the structure of the show, these short episodes, and also just the progress. Because once again, I, this is my curse, is that I am always writing an alternate version of the show that I would rather be seeing. <laughs> and in one version of the show, I, I actually thought that maybe Elias will be there and we'll now start seeing the dynamic fleshing yes. out. So they're still at risk. So now Alan is thinking like, how do I save Elias's life? How do I? So now we understand where he is maybe not taking action or they're trying to coordinate, maybe subversively communicate to, to attack collectively. Mm-hmm. But now that Elias is dead, it's like kind of like, well, like you're going to be dead too, Alan. And right. then another version of the show that I can imagine also, especially because the mom has been introduced, which I wouldn't have done personally. I wouldn't have introduced the mom, but now that the mom has been introduced as a character, I could imagine a scenario where imagine Alan turns the tables and now they have like a Sam is, uh, you know, chained up, but then the mom comes down with like a gun or something. And she says, you're going to do therapy on my son. And then Alan says, okay, but I'm not going to release him, you know? And the mom will be like, yes, he's dangerous. So now imagine that now he's captured is the exact opposite of what he wants. And they are trying to basically do therapy on him. Alan has openly said in this most recent episode that he thinks he can cure this guy, right? He thinks that there's something there. So imagine that now he gets caught up in this puzzle. Like he's like, he really wants to cure him, even though like, because now that he has control and he can end this, he can call the cops. And now he's like struggling with like, when does he actually do that? Because he's like, oh, this is a challenge for me now. So all these things, all these options for me would be more dramatically interesting Mm -hmm. than, uh, you know, and I think the psychology, like I said, I think they've actually defined the psychology pretty well here, but I honestly could imagine everything we've seen up till now being like three episodes, like (laughs) into the show, you know, instead of being six episodes. And part of that is honestly, because they've made very short episodes, right? So maybe like three longer episodes would have gotten us to the same point, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it is a little confusing to me, but we'll wait to see. And, you know, we only have four more episodes to go and they're short episodes. So hopefully they will be able to um, turn these things around or pull me back in. And maybe some of the things I just described will happen later, you know, in the back Mm -hmm. end of the show. So you said you want to say one more thing about the mom. Obviously, like their dynamic is really complicated and troubling. And there's something about either trauma bonding or Stockholm syndrome going on here. Mm -hmm. I think what what I thought was really interesting about what Alan mentions in his fantasy meeting with with Charlie, his therapist, is what would actually be helpful is if we got to Sam's anger at her Mm -hmm. for not protecting him. Right. And then he says something. Yeah, if I had five or six years, Mm -hmm. that was a key moment to me. Because on the one hand, we're seeing the mom being extremely complicit under the guise of pretending that she's sort of trying to protect her child, who's Mm -hmm. like so disturbed, so dangerous. But they have this sort of relationship where they have this idea that somehow they're protecting each other. Mm -hmm. When actually, if real therapy could happen, getting to Sam's underlying rage at his mother Mm -hmm. would probably do wonders. Yeah. That is often something that happens in an abuse dynamic where one parent is either also abused 
the same as the child is. Mm -hmm. You know, one parent is too terrified to intervene on the child's behalf or can't intervene. There's often a feeling of both wanting to protect that parent, but also feeling angry that they were not protected. So I just wanted to mention that it'll be really interesting to see if any of that sort of plays out in the last episodes here. Absolutely. And you had mentioned uh, previously that the creators of the show had been uh, in therapy and there's a therapist who is consulting on the show. And also uh, I wanted to circle back and uh, based on what you had said, this is a somewhat realistic portrayal of the process of therapy here in the show. So I'm curious, uh, you know, it's oftentimes very, very badly done. I'm just thinking about all those erotic thrillers from the nineties where, you know, the psychotherapists were like sleeping with their patients, which by Uh the way, does happen, unfortunately, right? Mm -hmm. Transference, right? Is often the case, but you know, it's glamorized in some kind of very toxic ways in those uh, films or those kind of cliches. But what did you feel are maybe some realistic uh, shows about therapy? I think in treatment is definitely probably the closest. The I haven't seen the newest iteration of that. I but, haven't seen that either, yeah. But the Gabriel Byrne mm-hmm. show, I think, and this is, of course, a reality show, but couples therapy on Showtime. Sona loves that show. She's always going on about that incredible. show. Yeah. It's, really, it's really interesting. Those are the two that come to mind right away. And I think, of course, on the one hand in the patient, it's completely, like I was saying, it's completely unrealistic because safety (laughs) and an agreement of mutual trust and safety is the cornerstone of therapy. Confidentiality, trust, empathy, safety. These are the things that are required. But I think the things that are more realistic that sort of capture something important, I think, about the process are some of Alan's, his attempts to interpret what's happening under the surface. And again, like around his rage at his mother, around him trying to sort of say, you're you're coming up with a reason to act out. They didn't do anything to provoke you, just like you didn't do anything to provoke your father. That's a very important interpretation, not something that Sam was able to take in at all. He's not in place to be able to hear that. Right. But so some of those kinds of more exploratory interpretations and attempts to intervene, I thought, were in line with what psychodynamic therapy can potentially be like. Right. And I mean, I don't know how this show is going to land. I assume that he's not going to actually cure him of his psych- psychopathy. But the, um, uh, but, you know, but to your point, I'm pretty sure that there has never been a, an instance of someone who is a psychopath or has some kind of, you know, severe personality disorder that was solved even like if you had a safe space, like in, in, a, in a trusting office type clinical situation where you'd be resolved in a month or two. Like I do not no think way. that is going to get solved. Like you said, it, like he says in the show itself, that he's like, just to get to the root trauma with his mother or the, the lack of trust he has because of the relationship with his mother. He's like, do you have six years? And it's like, yeah, yeah. just to get to that, much less <laughs> all the other, the impulse to kill and all the other things that are yeah. tied in that. Speaking of all that, I did want to segue into you attempted to watch the Dahmer show. And I do apologize I <laughs> that I made I you try to watch that because I know it traumatized <laughs> you a little bit. Um, and so to also struggled to get to that first episode. But what I wanted to bring up with you has nothing to do with whether you've watched the show or not. And just for anybody out there who's listening to this, Sarah has not watched the show, but I have some questions for 
some criticisms I had. I have so many criticisms about that show, but, or maybe, you know, before we get into the criticisms of the show, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is what do you think about this fascination? Obviously podcasts, there's a whole, maybe the most popular genre of podcasts, but it's not just podcasts. And it's not a new thing, by the way, you know, the John Wayne Gacy uh, documentary from like two years ago is back in the top 10 on Netflix because it's piggybacking off this Dahmer thing. Mm. But I mean, you could pretty much just pull up Netflix shows that top 10 trending shows at any given time. It's probably rarely a week that goes by where there's not some horrible uh, murder, uh, serial killer show or serial rapist or serial abuser of some kind or a cult or something. And this fascination with watching other people suffer (laughs) at the hands of these um, manipulators. And uh, so my question for you is, in general terms, is what's this fascination? But it's not like we haven't been fixated with cult leaders and serial killers for decades and decades at this point. So what do you think that fascination is that we have collectively? That's a great question. I think there's something sort of like titillating about it Mm -hmm. that in a gross way, there's Mm -hmm. like enough of like this distance from it Mm -hmm. that that people can, we can kind of like keep it over here in a box and like consume it as if it's um, entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what that's what I find disturbing about it. I'm it a fan. Disturbing. I'm a fan of horror, mm-hmm. and I like all different kinds of horror. I like like fun horror movies. I like horror movies that are like deeply disturbing, like kind of just put you in a headspace that you probably have. Like, man, I would have never gone there on my own, right? But at the same time, it is almost to your point. It's almost like having like a psychological practice of something that you know that you don't normally experience. So I can understand that aspect of it. What I find really disturbing in something like a Dahmer or some of these mm-hmm. true life cases. And maybe, like you said, maybe it's just a little extra seasoning because people are saying, like, I, I'm bored with horror movies. Now I want it has to be something that actually happened because then it mm-hmm. makes it more real. But I find that very troubling when people are basically saying, like, these are real people and we are like watching their actual trauma as entertainment, which is like, you know, a pretty mm-hmm. insane <laughs> situation. Yeah. I say this as someone who binged the Dahmer show, by the way. Like, so <laughs> I don't want to like right. look down my nose at anybody right. for doing the same. Right. Right it's very, it can be super exploitive. And I can say like, personally, as someone who I think I've gone through phases with sort of true crime, some of it, I think, especially the shows and podcasts that focus on shining a spotlight on marginalized people, or, you know, like, for instance, like all the indigenous women and women Mm -hmm. of color who've been killed that have never this whole, like the idea that like when a a white woman gets killed or kidnapped, it's like, it's all everybody can talk about. And it's like all over the news, but there's like all of these women of color that have disappeared or been brutally murdered have been completely ignored. And Mm -hmm. it's like the story is silenced. So I think the attention to those kind of stories is really important. Personally, it depends on specifically what story or what case it is working in a field where people suffer so much. And I talk to them about their suffering every day and having an experience of listening to something where there's a resolution at the end, Mm -hmm. like where their justice is served or, and actually victims are honored or remembered and their families have closure. Like these kinds of things where there's actually some kind of resolution Mm -hmm. There's something about that too, because for me, there's so much unknown. Like I've said to you before, it's rewarding work, but it's really hard work. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we don't get those resolutions. I think it's really every day kind of living in the gray area. So for me personally, which I know isn't really answering your question collectively, I, I think it's 
I feel like it's more just disturbing and exploitive, (laughs) but (laughs) I think you just made me think of something, which is I oftentimes find that even like serial killer procedurals, for example, are propaganda for authority figures basically, Uh because it's usually like these super clever FBI agents and they're cracking the case to Dahmer. The Dahmer shows credit almost every single episode, the closing beat on every episode is then like, and then the cops got called to his apartment or the cops got called to his grandmother's house and there's someone dying in the basement and the cops did nothing. And they do that over and over again. So to their point, they center the story of the victims and they show just like the John Wayne Gacy case, which is something that has been glamorized in a perverse way. Um, I'm actually going to include it here in the show notes, but I found an article basically saying that the cops screwed up and let Gacy get away with this. They were at his house multiple times. He was the prime suspect for 15 of these murders and they let him kill 30 people. And this article was written in 1978. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's from the Chicago yeah. Tribune, right? Yeah. So I'll put it in the notes so everybody can see that basically the fantasy we've created about these super predators, it's based on the movies we've watched. It's based on the narrative of like, these guys are so smart, we couldn't possibly catch them. But like I said, go to the news reports in the time that they happened. And they're like, these people were utterly incompetent and let this Mm -hmm. guy get away with it for decades. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that now we've kind of come back around. But to your point of even the fantasy version of these shows, I think you touched on something very important, which is that I feel it's the same reason people believe in conspiracy theories. They would rather believe that there is someone pulling the levers of power. They could be space aliens or whatever, but people rather than thinking that the world is a very great place and that good intentions could have bad consequences or that people just die because a hurricane just blows through and kills you, right? Like these things that cannot be controlled. People want to believe that there is a beginning and a middle and an end and because even if there's some evil person behind the curtain it's still comforting to them to be like, well, there's somebody who's basically doing it and we can catch the bad guy if we look hard enough instead of just being like bad things happen sometimes. Right. Yeah. And that's not reassuring for a lot of people. So much of the time, this fantasy that the justice system like works perfectly, right. you know, right. it's just like all bullshit. Right. And so then the times when, when actually something does happen where someone who has performed these horrible atrocities, right. the times when they actually are sort of stopped, held to account, that's actually in some ways probably much more rare than right. we think it is. But it sure. brings it does bring this sort of feeling of like, okay, maybe, maybe something can be kind of controlled or justice can be served in this way. They do some things that I will compliment them for. I do think it's exploitative, but I think they're try <laughs> to dress it up like something that is positive. And hey, like I said in my original review, if this is all a Trojan horse for people to realize like some of the incompetence that led to this to happen, well, then at least people are uh, acknowledging that. And when you see the social media chatter, people are shocked by those facts. So it's not like they're just there for the grisly stuff. And as a matter of fact, there's very little blood in that show at all. Uh, And then, you know, uh, they're not getting that. People are literally saying, like, I cannot believe the cops escorted that 14-year-old kid back into that house. Like, it's literally what people are mostly commenting on. So I'm like, I'm glad that at least, like I said, even if the show is just like putting that on so that they don't feel like completely gross about what they're doing, the message is getting out, which, which I give it credit for. Something I do not give it credit for is that after episode one, you flash back to his childhood. And they go into great depth uh, with uh, some of the experiences he had in his childhood, which are pretty well documented. And Richard Jenkins playing his father gives a very good performance and has a lot of nuance to this not great relationship he had with his son, but him trying to connect. And he probably didn't do everything perfectly, but they give him his humanity. Everybody gets their humanity, including Dahmer, by the way. But his mom, you know, she gets diagnosed very late in the show as having had postpartum depression, 
But basically in all those flashbacks, I think the very first time we see her on camera, he comes home from school and his infant brother is screaming his head off because she has overdosed. And apparently the baby's been screaming all day while she has OD'd. And then she's back in the house. Every time she's there, she's screaming at Dahmer. She is, you know, just shrill. And basically I have no idea watching this show, anything about this woman, as opposed to like, you know, Dahmer, we kind of know what his fantasies are, what he wanted to be when he was a kid, why he started drinking as a teenager. We see the same thing with his dad. Everybody pretty much gets some level of humanity, except for this screaming, his birth mother, because there's also a stepmother, but this birth mother gets like no <laughs> you know, quarter at all, like nothing. Mm. And mm. I was feeling that's incredibly reductive. Once again, going back to the idea of like, you know, bad mom, psycho killer. And I'm like, hey, if everybody who had a bad relationship with their mom was a psycho killer, then we'd be a lot more psycho killers out there, right? Because <laughs> there's a whole bunch of us, right? Mm -hmm. The second thing that I think is really reductive is it's based on what Dahmer said, even in the flashbacks to the killings, he's going on and on about how he doesn't want them to leave. So he wants them to stay in the apartment. So that's why he does all these things to them, right? To make them stay. And he has this, this terror of separation, which maybe goes all the way back to his mom. And, and my sister asked me that when we were discussing this on the show, being like, do you think that like, just like that fear, that anxiety of being abandoned would make someone like eat people? And I'm just like, I do not think, <laughs> but I want to get your assessment of that. Obviously, not that everybody who has abandonment issues is a serial killer. Once again, very rare. But um, more to, to that point is, do you think that that could be so traumatic? You know, obviously, this guy has other mental problems as well, but that that could be such a uh, traumatic element in their personality that it would create this level of disassociation? Or do you think that's like, you know, they're kind of just pop psychology here? Hmm. Well, wow. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's a big I question. Mean, yeah, that's like, that's. I think without, of course, without watching the show, but also with knowing some of the, with knowing a little bit about Dahmer because he's, his, that case has been so heavily covered. Right. The creative choices about depicting the mom that way. I think you also mentioned like, is there something with Ryan Murphy and, you know, yeah. his feelings about women that's coming, yeah. you know, from a like psychological point of view, I think often there's this sort of idea that is, I think, very pop psychology idea about like FBI profiling, like mm -hmm. often serial killers have a mother who's either cold and withholding or mm -hmm. abusive, considering that like sort of as with a grain of salt, if we're talking about both postpartum depression, mm -hmm. a mother who has a drug problem to the degree where she's overdosing with an infant mm -hmm. and she's actively abusive was she physically abusive to Dahmer too or or they don't indicate any kind of physical abuse just emotional yeah, I don't abuse. remember them. at least in the depiction in the show there's no physical mm -hmm. abuse by either parent there is a lot of the dad was traveling constantly for work so he yeah. spent a lot of time with the mom part of what is legitimately probably true is that he is slowly starting to fetishize uh, these uh, animals he's dissecting. And they know that he's dissecting animals in the garage, by the way, the dad actually does it with him because the dad kind of has this as a hobby as well. Mm -hmm. So they kind of start doing this. And so maybe that's part of this as well as like, you know, he, he has some kind of uh, emotional connection to that act because it was a bonding experience for his dad. But mostly they show it as the dad is away a lot. And the uh -huh. mom basically just wants nothing to do with him. She just thinks he's a weirdo and she doesn't want anything to do with him. And that's basically. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. So that kind of like rejection and also what sounds like humiliation, I think, which I actually think going back to the patient is a big part of Sam's problem too, is humiliation yeah. Yeah. that with abandonment, 
and with being sort of neglected, those factors combined can, I think, really create some really deep wounds for someone. Yeah. And the the sort of idea of him then consuming flesh mm. almost as like to keep someone with him, I actually don't think is that far-fetched. I could go into some really, I won't go into it now. Maybe we can revisit it. It's like really, really deep, like psychoanalytic stuff. But I think the idea of taking, of being that deprived in every way, mm-hmm. there could be some kind of symbolic meaning of like, literally, I have to physically keep someone yeah. with me so that I'm not alone. Right. There's something there. And the fact that his dad was absent too, it just, right. he just sounds like he was so deprived in every way. To the show's credit, intentionally or not, it made me think about this when I was watching a couple of things I think they, that they do very well. And maybe they do have a psychiatrist, a psychologist on, on hand to, to guide them through this. First of all, it's just in the presentation of it. You see how he is so alienated. You know, he's also struggling with his own sexuality and stuff, yeah. which of course, once again, people who are, you know, struggling with their sexuality do not normally become serial killers. So, but still, you know, these are, you know, compounding uh, events possibly. And what they put out there, which I think is interesting, is that he is so isolated. And then there's a point where his dad, and this is where I think it's kind of interesting, his dad at one point towards the end of the show blames himself because what he says is when he was young, he had fantasies of like sexually controlling girls, you know, like, and he's like, maybe I somehow put that into his uh, son's head. And also, once again, some of the other themes they brought, bring up on the show, to their credit, it made me think about not necessarily that that is that there was like some inheritance between the dad and the son, but more that I think I watch TV shows with my daughter right now. And a lot of those kids shows that we watch, they, of course, kids don't have control over their own lives. They have a magic wand where they can control their parents and stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. So what it made me think about more, and it made me think about incels in the current uh, context, I think we have a situation now with the internet, but also in the past, just Dahmer's upbringing. We all probably have fantasies when we're children, fantasies as we're you know pubescent, that uh, you know fantasies of control because we don't have control over our lives. But yep. there is some kind of social feedback where we can take these fantasies and put them into a more positive light. And I think that that's what Dahmer never had. And I think that's, once again, to correlate it to like incels now, you have these people who are like on the internet and they're so isolated where they can just kind of revel in these preposterous fantasies because there's no feedback loop. And you really think about that in the Dahmer show. Towards the end, he had killed people occasionally. When he finally got kicked out of his grandmother's house, he's now living in that apartment by himself. He was only there for months and he did most of his killing in that very short period of time. And then he started killing sometimes multiple people per week because he had like this schematic of this altar he was trying to build out of their bones and stuff. It made me think in that moment, there's this guy who's like so cut off from everybody else that every crazy fantasy that he has in his head, he's got no sounding board. This is just getting more. It's like, he's just going down this rabbit hole of more and more insane. uh, and, And he obviously had psychological issues. So it's not like an average person is probably never going to have this experience. But I feel like if you just had had any kind of social feedback, like if he was closer to his family, if he was still living at his mother's house, his grandmother's house, um, which he did kill people during that period of time also, but it would have probably not have escalated to the point it did just because there would have been some need to interact with other people. (laughs) Right. No reality testing at all. That's a great point. And I think that we do think about that period of development as essential in in someone becoming like a functional adult, you know, because if we think about it, we go from as a small child, our world is very small, right? It's me and my, 
my caregivers, right? My family. And then slowly we kind of have to kind of cope with that. Like all of a sudden it's like this idea that, wait a second, I was the center of attention. Mm -hmm. And now as things are kind of changing and I'm realizing that other people actually are their own individual people too. Mm -hmm. There's a point in development as, as children where we realize, oh yeah, I don't have any control over anything. Whereas before I could just cry and people would feed me and do whatever I wanted them to. Right. You know? right. That sort of point of development is very crucial, but it has to be, sh but it's short, it's mm -hmm. limited in time because then we start to realize, like you're saying, that other people exist. We need to share. We need to learn empathy. We need to consider other people's feelings. We need to understand that other people matter the same way that we do and all these things. And so when that's interrupted in such a severe way, especially with all the abuse and deprivation, it can create this like complete lack of understanding of reality. Yeah. And I mean, he probably, you know, he was diagnosed uh, correctly or incorrectly as having, you know, borderline personality disorder and psychopathy or, or, or um, sociopathy. And uh, I, I mean, I, I forget how many different diagnoses he had. So I'm pretty sure this was like the perfect storm of <laughs> crazy, because honestly, you think about some of, you know, people who are criminals, uh, even if you look at people who weren't serial killers, just like criminals in general, and you look at some of their backgrounds, they have incredibly violent, uh, tragic abandonment issues. You know, they've basically lost multiple generations of their family being raised by people who abused them or did horrible things to them. And they became criminals. Dahmer did not have, you know, he was probably neglected to the degree that many, many people <laughs> live, you know, middle-class lives and uh, live in these kind of uh, neglectful situations rather than overtly physically abusive ones. You know, obviously it was uh, a degree of that his psychology. But of course, there's also, you know, like I mentioned, something that I think they do a good job of here is that there were many times, many times, even after his very first murder, and when he was still a teenager, where there could have been intervention even then. And of course, it didn't happen. That's kind of what led to all these terrible things. So hopefully, we're better culturally at this point, or maybe we're more aware at least. And hopefully we don't glamorize these killers, you know? So my uh, sister mentioned this. She like kind of watched the Dahmer thing. She likes horror movies. She kind of thought she was going to watch it like as a horror movie. Like she's like, I could almost smell how disgusting it must be to live in this guy's house. Mm. And I'm like, yes, the show is not making it like entering into the Dracula's tomb or something. It's like this guy, everybody, the neighbors are complaining about the smell coming from his apartment. No one's doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. It's a completely unglamorized version of this. So I do give him credit for that. Yeah. Maybe, you know, as popular as this is, maybe something positive will come out of it. Uh, yeah. So that was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. That was time. great. <laughs> I had a wonderful time again, as always. Yeah. I really appreciate you talking with me. It's been sure. a really good conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. And we will, uh, maybe we'll cut a circle back at the, uh, and like, I guess it's four more episodes, maybe at the end of the run of the patient. Will he cure him? I, I honestly, this is one thing that I would say keeps me watching the show as frustrated as I am sometimes. I have no idea how the show is going to end because I'm like, is he going to mm -hmm. get cured? Absolutely not. Are they just going to kill off the Alan character? No, that doesn't make any sense either. So I have no idea what they're going to do. So yeah. I'll give him credit for that because I, you know, usually I can guess how a movie's going to end or how a show's going to end. Like episode two, I'm already just waiting for it to happen. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's going to happen in this show. Totally. So I'll give him credit for that. Yeah. I would love to talk again at, at the at the end and we'll see where things go. All right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.